Yeah, my one by one idea. My idea of addressing every question in this crazy fucking paragraph individually, you know, like a psychopath. Welcome back to Check This Plays, a podcast where we know how to pronounce the name of the artist. Today, we're going to be looking at comic 219, Goodbye for the Summer, Roman numeral 2, which was originally posted on February 26, 2015. I'm secret. I can pronounce Ngozi, but I can't pronounce the word Roman. That's it for me. Some important context, I'm Tomato, by the way, is that we just, after a year of doing this podcast, saying the author's name all the time, watched several videos trying to make sure that we were pronouncing it correctly. And what we discovered is that we pronounce it differently and aren't 100% sure, which is more correct, despite several tweets about this matter that probably instigated this worry. Well, anyway, my name, my real name, not Tomato, gets mispronounced by everybody, so whatever it's fine yeah i think we were thrown because today she tweeted something like here's how you pronounce my name or you can pronounce it like this and i think that gave us an existential crisis and by us i mean me i started this call by saying tomato i have to tell you something it's Uh, very serious and i feel very awkward about this i'm not sure how to say it so i guess i'll just say it I'm not sure you're pronouncing the name correctly. And then we spent 10 minutes trying to figure that out. And did we? No. However, that's fine. Here we are talking about Biddy and Jack, whose names I think I'm pronouncing correctly. They certainly seem to be. Okay, but truly, I will say, I get it. My name has been mispronounced by people. As soon as I introduce myself to them, they immediately mispronounce it back to me when they say nice to meet you. So I get it. It's frustrating. People also misspell my name constantly to the point where, in fact, it is misspelled on my social security card, which my parents should have fixed and never did. And now I haven't fixed. And now I'm 30. Wish someone had just read my fucking birth certificate, but whatever. Summary. Oh, yeah. Oops. Okay. Jack and Biddy kiss twice. Then Jack's phone buzzes and he leaves, reassuring Biddy that he'll text him. They kiss once more and Jack leaves as Biddy, with a thousand yard stare, sits down. Biddy's phone buzzes and he looks down. Okay, so before we hop into this comic, I want to tell everybody that over on Ngozi's Patreon Discord, actually today she also was chatting a little bit about the making of these two strips. And one of the things that she wrote about was how she really ships these characters and she used that language. And she talked about how she was less involved in fandom while she was making check pleas because effectively she sort of considered herself shipping Jack and Biddy. And now that she's working on a project that she says is not shippy, she's kind of getting more into other fandom stuff again. And that her creation of the original Huddle comic was effectively because she wanted to like draw shipping art for her own characters. And that for her, these two particular strips fit into sort of like her shipping of Jack and Biddy. And she also posted a couple of raw sketches from this particular comic. I've said this several times on our Discord, but I have never actually, I'm not sure if I've said this on the podcast before, Her Patreon is really good. She spends a lot of time 
sharing content and sharing insight into her process. Not all of it necessarily pure gold, but she's very open about her investment in what she makes and how she makes it and why. And so if you have $5 a month, and you want to be on the Discord where she chats with fans about what's going on. I think it's a really valuable thing to do. And I think it was just sort of interesting to get a little bit of this confirmation about her perspective on the Jack and Biddy relationship as we're in the middle of recording episodes about these two particular strips. I also find that interesting because it contextualizes and also kind of confirms some of the conversations we've had about Chuck Please's fandom adjacency in terms of tone and style. It totally makes sense that she would consider these characters shippy when we kind of think about how the whole comic operates in relationship to fandom tropes and fandom genre and so on. So that's interesting to hear from her mouth though. Yeah, and I think she she used the terminology basically that this was like her shipping her own OCs or something like that. But it also maybe shed some light on conversations that we had about the previous episode and how this seemingly kind of comes out of nowhere, but it's following certain genre tropes and established expectations for what fanfics do or what slash stories do. And it's because that's how she feels about her own characters, apparently. I also find that really interesting as someone who also makes original work. It's pretty fascinating to me that she would consider like this work to be shippy, but then she's also writing a comic right now, which is engaging with the ideas of romance, but which is not like shippy between the characters. And I would be really curious to hear her talk more about like what shippiness means to her. I, as I may have mentioned before, lost my Patreon password many moons ago. So should probably figure that out one of these days in order to perhaps get into this discord someday. But I'd be really curious for her, like what the quality of that feeling is like compared to the quality of the feeling she has about the character she's writing now. And I wonder whether it would explain anything about like character's depth or lack thereof. This is getting kind of further afield from Check Please, but I do sort of wonder like if a fandom springs up around her next work, how is she gonna feel about that? If she doesn't consider these two characters shippy or she doesn't ship them, but then readers of this book do and want to make fan work about it, how is she gonna feel? Because if she's shipping Jack and Biddy, well, Jack and Biddy is like the pairing for this comic effectively. In a lot of senses, the fandom is just basically iterating that which she already wants to put out there about her own work. And it also maybe explains a little bit about how seemingly frustrated she is with people whose fan works don't fall in line with her own vision for the project. Right, including interpretations, it seems to me, even of Jack and Biddy, if those interpretations don't like match what the comic suggests is the correct interpretation or whatever. I mean, I don't think the comic suggests there's a correct interpretation necessarily, but I think that paratexts do. That said, I also wonder, you know, her relationship to Check Please is so long and also 
so particular because of how it started as like a fun thing she did with her friends, you know, like in the context of fandom. So I wonder whether she'll feel farther away slash more separate if a fandom springs up around her next work and maybe she'll feel a little less implicated or like it's necessary to kind of wade in. Well, I suppose we'll have to follow and find out. Yeah, here we are. The last strip of year two. I just want to point out in the meantime, back and check, please. Like, I think this strip is really, really beautiful. We talked last time about the particular visual elements that make this and the last strip beautiful, but I also think like the emotion in this strip is much stronger than the emotion in the last strip. And this final panel where Biddy sits down in this chair and then looks down at his phone has stuck with me since I saw it for the first time. And in fact, I would say this panel is what made me go like, oh my God, and then go check out AO3 because there's something about the lack of resolution in this panel which feels much more complicated than it turned out to be. That for me was just incredible and still sticks with me. Even rereading it, I was like, oh my God, this panel is still so good. You know, years later with all these other, all this other baggage, I still think it's really good. Oh, I remember the final thing she said about this strip. Uh Uh-huh, what'd she say? She basically copped to, she said that people saw this strip and thought Jack looked like a judge. And then she was like, oh, well, my art's gotten better. Seriously, follow this Discord. It's it's worth it. If you've got five bucks a month and you're at all invested in this comic, you should. Anyway, so she admits that he looks like a judge. So here, uh, Judge Jack is making out with butters and it's a really beautiful strip i have some thoughts on this meaning of this final panel which i think we'll eventually get into you can see that biddy biddy was interrupted so he didn't finish folding chowder's clothes because there's an unfolded sweatshirt on the armchair valuable comment you're welcome I'm thrilled to understand Biddy's state of mind through this observation. Thank you. I think we touched on this briefly in the last strip, but looking at this strip in particular, the parts where the the light blue background, like they're not my favorite, but they're fine. This really made the rounds, but like this is the basis of all of the Nambla jokes I have been unable to stop myself from making about Jack Zimmerman. Now, do I think Jack Zimmerman wants to join Nambla? Not on purpose, but I think he might end up there, accidentally blunder into a meeting and stay and then not really realize what's going on until it's too late and he has a pamphlet that he doesn't know what to do with. So I do think there's something about the way that they kiss in the close-up that doesn't make Biddy look like a child. It's really warm and romantic and intimate. But then when we get to that blue, those blue background panels in the center panel of the strip, he goes right back to looking like a kid. And it's really kind of eerie. That's one of the reasons I don't love those panels. But the rest of the strip, I think, is quite beautiful. Well, I think in the in the sort of final panel of this, this kissing sequence where Jack is saying, I gotta go, and he's looking at his phone, I think that's where the spell kind of breaks. Oh, I think that's where the spell breaks for Biddy. But for no, me No, I think that's where the spell breaks in terms of him looking like a in terms of him looking like a child because all of a sudden you sort of see them in relationship to each other. Like they're not collapsed into each other anymore. It's Jack is sort of straightening up and he's looking down at Biddy and he's staring at his phone. And then you can see more of Biddy's face too. And you can see that Biddy's eyes are at Jack's chest level. And you can really all of a sudden tell that there's this unevenness between the two of them. I was looking at the wrong panel. I was looking at the panel, the next panel where Jack says, I'll text you. And that's when the sort of emotion breaks for Biddy. And Biddy then, even though he's got this wide-eyed stare, he actually looks much less childlike. But 
in relationship to Jack, not even in terms of their heights, because even if you go a couple panels later, like Biddy's chest is more muscular. He like looks older. And we've talked about the inconsistency of her art. I'm not trying to like call it out here. It's just whatever. But there is something really strange about the way that they fit together. And I wonder if that's related again to this idea of shippiness. We don't have to go into it too much. We've talked about it before, but but for some reason that's fitting into my head in a particular way. Anyway, yeah, Jack joins Nambla. Look, I, I don't know what to tell you. I think Biddy is folding his clothes as is one of Biddy's top activities. And he's like, oh, what's this crinkled up thing in the pocket? And he pulls it out and it's welcome to Nambla, welcome kit. And I think he folds it back up and he puts it back in the pants and he uh, folds Jack's pants over a hanger and he hangs them back up in the closet and he closes the closet door and he goes into the bathroom and he washes his hands. And then he flushes the toilet, even though he hasn't used it. And then he closes the bathroom door and then he goes into the living room and he sits down on the couch and then he picks up his phone and then he tweets something about Real Housewives. That seems probable. What I would also like to suggest is that Jack brings Biddy to the Nambla meeting, the next one, you know, that his friend or whoever has invited him to. Look, I don't know how he got there. I just know he ended up there. And he brings Biddy to try to dispel some myths because in fact, Jack like actually isn't pro Nambla, but instead everyone thinks he's very brave for bringing his like child lover out with him in public. This is just how I think it's going to happen. And I think Biddy is very flattered because to be thought of as a child, why he's in his thirties now or whatever. Exactly. It's too dark. Okay. Well, you can choose whether or not you want this when you're editing. We are not in any way a pro Nambla podcast, by the way. Have you seen the South Park episode, Cartman Joins Nambla? (laughs) No, but I think last time I started making this joke, you told me about it, so I should watch it. It's funny. It's it's good. Anyway, back to this comic that has nothing to do with Nambla. Well, except the butters, isn't it? Oh, God. Do you think... Okay, here's a real question. What do you think... And just briefly, what do you think Tumblr in 2020 slash 2021, you know, post the beginning of what I will call the pedophilia wars, for lack of a better term, what do you think Tumblr would have made of this series of panels, even in the context of the broader strip? Do you think that there would be enough good grace for the comic because of the other things that the comic has going for it that Tumblr really likes? Or do you think that this would be like unforgivable? Or do you not really have a sense? Is it apples and oranges just because the context is so different? We've talked about this before. I think the pedophilia wars started way before you you think they started because I was in South Park fandom and in the late 2000s, early 2010s, people were fighting with us about whether or not shipping South Park characters including aged up South Park characters who we were writing about in their late teens, 20s, 30s, 40s was pedophilia. I'm not trying to discount that, but clearly it hadn't gotten to the point that it now gets to because Check Please was not impacted by that discourse at all. Like it wasn't part of any of the problems that people had with Check Please, whereas now it seems to be in every fandom. So I'm totally not denying that it was part of South Park. But it's not part of Check Please is the thing. And the thing is, I'm not in other fandoms. 
I don't know that this is part of every fandom. I don't know that it is either. All I can say is that I'm much more multi-fandom than you are. And for me, there was a noticeable difference between it being part of no fandom and it being part, to some extent, of many fandoms where it was a huge thing in like it fandom, but it was also in like supernatural fandom, which I've been in and out of supernatural fandom for many years. It was never part of supernatural fandom before, even when people were fighting about incest or whatever, pedophilia wasn't part of it. Maybe this then isn't a useful question. I don't know. There's something about this which is prickling at me, but we we don't have to waste more time on it. I think if you make this criticism, I'm in the middle. And by in the middle, I'm at the end of editing the previous episode right now. And we talk a lot about, or at least I talk a lot about, why people make the accusation that Biddy looks like a kid or that there's something like vaguely underaged feeling about these panels. And people have been making that observation for a long time. It's just that people, I think, are appropriately able to compartmentalize. It looks like Biddy is really young because of the way he's being drawn, but that's not pedophilia, and it's also not underage. And they understand that textually it isn't either. And I think that to a certain extent, it's much easier to level that accusation against other fans than it is to level it against a creator. People were not, say, coming at Trey Parker and Matt Stone for making a show where eight to 10 year old children were being sexualized. They were coming at the people in the fandom for shipping the characters, even indeed if they were aged up. I guess I'm curious about it because as we've discussed, Ngozi was much closer to her fans than most creators. And I would never expect people who made it fan art where the character was 40, but looked too young. And then they got, you know, sent death threats until they left Twitter or whatever. I completely understand why that relationship to that film, you know, you're not going to be able to get to any of those people. They're they're too wealthy. They're too famous. They're not going to care about some random whatever. I don't know why I think there's value in this thought experiment and maybe there isn't, but I'm really curious whether Ngozi started this project in a different time and place of the internet, whether Jack and Biddy would have the relationship they have or whether the kind of ship war or whatever. I mean, it wasn't really a ship war, but the kind of tension around Kent Parson and Jack and Biddy would have lent themselves to that rhetoric. It's not that it's not useful. I think there's a tendency in fandom for the discourse to become, this is a new thing that's a new trend that's happening now. And that's not to say that things don't come in out of fashion or that fandom doesn't go in waves or that issues don't evolve or whatever. But I think it's more often that all of a sudden people notice that it's happening in their sphere or it's happening in a way that suddenly impacts them. But the entire time I've been in fandom, issues of accusing other people of their preferred ship being pedophilic or abusive in some way has been part of the discourse. In the early 2000s when I was in Lord of the Rings fandom, that was 
something that was under the surface in terms of how people were shipping Mary and Pippin. And then, you know, when I was in South Park fandom, it wasn't just South Park fandom. It was DeviantArt effectively changed its terms of service so that nobody could do any aged up art at all. You weren't allowed to do any aged up shipping art. This policy was unevenly enforced and it was also kind of bullshit, but it wasn't just South Park. It just happened to be that I was in the South Park fandom, but impacts other fandoms, like any fandom that has cartoon kid characters who are then written about in high school or whatever. That ended up basically getting TOS from from DeviantArt. And then people talk a lot about strike through on LiveJournal, but the blogs that were deleted were deleted because they apparently had pedophile content on them. So I think this is just something that's mm. followed the history of fandom. I remember strike through, like I was around during strike through, and I remember that pedophilia was the accusation which was also sometimes just a code word for gay content or a code word for people talking about their abuse. It seems to me what's different now, and I've been in a lot of fandoms, like I tend to dip my toe in and out of fandoms. I tend to read quite widely, even if I'm not writing for different fandoms. So I would say that I was less dedicated than you are to one particular fandom, except apparently to Check Please, which for some reason has captured my imagination like nothing else in my life in which I'm in forever. But I, you know, I still like read around and still engage in different kinds of fandom. And to me, it seems more widespread and I'm just curious if I was just oblivious to it before or it just happened to be the kinds of fandoms I was in that I missed it. What's also I think has changed is that pedophilia while it may still be a code word at times for gay content for some people it seems much less like the Christian so strike through we don't need to get into the whole history but strike through was primarily pushed through by a pretty far right Christian group that was trying to get six apart the live journal company to censor or blogs. It seems to me that that Christianness, while I think is still present in the rhetoric of purity politics or whatever, is no longer so explicitly connected to it. And so I, I don't know, there's something about the change over time in my parts of fandom that I'm very, I just don't know how I missed this. I don't know how it all of a sudden popped up out of nowhere. And I was like, what the fuck is an anti? And I didn't know what an anti was for like a really long time. And then feel confused about how it seems to have spread so widely, but maybe I was just missing the signs the whole time. I don't know. And so Some part of me is curious about this dynamic between Jack and Biddy because it was sort of just never ever examined in Check Please and and I don't know that it would be now but I feel like it might be in a different way. I don't know how many times I have to say this. Sorry. In multiple, no, 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 don't be sorry. I think this is something that comes up in every conversation or every subgroup that I'm involved in in fandom these days. Aunties have always been a part of fandom. The adoption of that term through its original formulation as an anti-fan has, I don't know, evolved over maybe the past 10 years, but antis have always been a part of fandom, like always. Do you think they use the same tactics? Because to me, it does feel different. Yeah. But I they use the exact same vocab in the 1970s and 80s when over letters to the editor, women were shaming each other for what they were publishing in print Star Trek fanzines. No, my guess is that the terminology was not 100% the same. But yes, 
they used the same tactics. Hmm. Did you ever watch ContraPoint's canceling video? No, I never did. So one thing that's valuable in there, and it's like a 90 minute long, it's a, it's a feature length video. So I wouldn't say watch the entire thing just for this. But one of the things that ContraPoints does, and this is not an analysis of that video, is talk about how the way in which cancel culture now, so she's recording that video at the end of 2019, posting it in the beginning of 2020. So now we're like, you know, uh, 15 months removed from it. Cancel culture now has the exact same tactics, the exact same parallels, follows the exact same way that women in the 1970s feminist movement would basically purity police each other out of the movement by quote unquote trashing. Gotcha. Okay. This is making me think of Mark Fisher's exiting the vampire castle or any leftist essay about intercommunity policing. Thank you for I... the um, timeline. I appreciate it because I feel like I don't have that perspective and it's helpful to hear. I'm not saying everything is always the same. Time is a flat circle. Nothing is ever different and the conversation never moves and everything we've done has been done before. So it doesn't matter, get over it. I don't think that's true. I think that things that are happening in your life right now are particular to you and particular to your circumstance and knowing that, oh, there was also purity culture in the 1970s and 80s doesn't actually help anybody who's feeling boxed in because of purity culture right now. But I don't think it necessarily serves us to treat every moment in fandom as if it is this new, crazy, undiscovered thing that has only emerged over the period in which we've become aware of it. I think that's true. And I also think it's really helpful to think about, okay, if people have had these conversations before, how did we get out of these jams or what kinds of debates were had about them previously? I think that's super helpful. So that's one of the reasons I'm grateful you bring it up. I also have a very poor memory. So I like hearing you talk about it more than once because maybe it'll get in there better. Here's what I will say, and this is maybe a circuitous way to get back to check, please, comma, the comic. What is different about now is the platforms we're using and the media we're using. What I mean by that is all of this wank or what we now call discourse in Star Trek fandom in the 70s, 80s, and 90s was happening through paper correspondence in zines that were published once or maybe at most a few times a year. And they'd be happening through letters to the editor. So you'd see something in a Star Trek fanzine and you'd send a letter to the editor and the letter to the editor would then get put into the fanzine, the next issue of which would take months to produce. And then finally you'd see your letter in print months after you'd sent it, which would have been months after the story you were responding to was written. And then people who wanted to respond to your letter, it would also take months. So it wasn't this blistering, fast-paced, like things going over and over again, mimetically on Tumblr, where the same posts with different addenda are circulating past you constantly every day, all day long, day after day on a website like Tumblr that you can access periodically up to constantly. It's just a different like density and frequency of information. So I think it feels 
Like there's a lot more of it because it's happening so much more quickly. That makes sense. And even people like me, I was in fandom for a long time and was like very removed from fandom drama because even though I wrote fanfic, I am not that good at making friends online secret being the exception and a couple other people being the exception. But on LiveJournal, it was much easier to sort of just be oblivious to that stuff if you weren't friends with the right people or on the right comms or whatever. Whereas on Tumblr, because of reblogging and so on, and on Twitter, because of RTing and, and whatever, it just gets much more difficult to avoid any of that stuff. My personal experience is the opposite, where on LiveJournal, everything was sort of centralized, but it would be localized on one post or one community. So if you didn't want to see the post, within a couple posts, it would be down your friends page. And if you didn't want to click on the comments and see what was going on, then you could just ignore it. Or you could leave the community or you could whatever, you know, you could spread it out. There would be ways to, oh, I'm not interested in this. And it just wouldn't be in front of your face. But with Tumblr, and I guess also with Twitter, things just circulate directly in front of your face over and over again. So it's no longer that if you want to, yeah, it's no longer that if you want to see what people are saying about an issue, you have to go back to that post and open the comments up again and scroll through the comments to see if anybody's written anything new. It's that you have to see things as they are just sort of put in front of you with no control over how frequently they're happening. Not that there wasn't drama or wank or discourse or whatever, like on blogging platforms, but the format was somewhat different. Yeah. And I think it was easier, even though things were centralized on LJ, agreed, everything was organized in such a way that everything was kind of opt-in. And on Tumblr, almost nothing is opt-in unless you set up a bunch of blacklisted words and really, really curate who you follow and what you follow and, and so on and so forth. And even then, it's different than having your own journal page and then having a friends page, which is segregated from that. Obviously, you do still have your own sort of blog and then your your feed is different from your blog, but it feels much more integrated and in a different way. Anyway, thank you very much for talking about that. I think part of the mimetic nature of the discourse makes it get into my head and I am I think a little more obsessive about it than you are so I appreciate thinking about it in its longer historical context instead of just in the past couple years anyway uh let's get back to this outline we made this is not my original observation but something that's really lovely about this strip is the way that Jack's eyebrow quirks in annoyance at the text messages that he's getting if you look at the first page last panel and then you look at the first panel of the next page side by side you can really see the way that he notices that his phone is buzzing and annoyance creeps in while he's in the middle of kissing biddy at this point i have no idea who i originally read note that but i think it's a really lovely quirk and then the other thing that i think is a really lovely detail is that we talked a little bit about this chair, or at least I mentioned this crazy slanty-legged dorm room chair. This is like a very common chair in uh, dorm rooms at American universities. I guess the hockey house is owned by the school. Otherwise, why would they have this school-issued dorm room chair in Jack's bedroom? I'm sure they stole it. There's no way that the university outfitted this. 
house is my opinion jack slash chatter seems to have a a dorm bed and a dorm chair maybe they stole it who's to say what's particular about these chairs that are ubiquitous in u.s college dorm rooms is that they have these slanty legs at the back to basically keep students from falling over in the chair so what's interesting is that when biddy sits down in the chair you can see that he sits down with a lot of force and the chair reacts like one of those slanty leg dorm room chairs would react that's it that's my observation but i want to second the fact that it's a lovely detail and also for people who've ever sat in one of these chairs which is most people who've attended an american university which is presumably a lot of the people reading the comic there's like a really specific sensation of rocking back in the chair and the way that the balance in your body has to fit that's not the right verb the way that you have to hold your center of balance in order to sit properly in those chairs because if you sit the wrong way it'll tip back it won't knock you over but it, it'll tip you so For me, this is both like a lovely little moment of characterization, but there's also this somatic experience almost of looking at it because that experience of sitting down in one of those chairs, which is like very particular, also comes up for me. So I think it grounds the reading in a particular physical way, which is kind of unusual for Check, Please. And I don't know, I really like it. But more on that scene later. So here's my question is we've talked a lot about Ngozi's strength and drawing characters feeling like ambiguous things on their faces. But what do you read Biddy's face as here? So I actually don't think this is ambiguous. I think this is just shock. I've gone back and forth on this over the years. The first time I read it, I definitely thought it was just shock. Then I don't know. There's something about it. I don't know whether it's just because of the unresolved tension in the final panel, but there's something about it that I read as something more complicated. Um, But then I would veer back towards shock again. So I was just curious, but yeah, shock makes sense. I guess you'd be surprised if you're straight crush bent down and kissed the daylights out of you before leaving you again. That's never happened to me. So I don't know about that. It just looks like shock to me for whatever reason. I've never, I've never read anything in his face in these last couple of panels other than shock. It's the wide eyed blinkness of his face and his expression doesn't change by the way between staring out the room at where jack has just left and looking at the phone he looks down but his face doesn't change there is this kind of interesting moment too in the second panel where they stop kissing for a second biddy's eyes get really wide and then they kiss again and then his eyes get wide again so there's something maybe that's part of it too there's this sort of like back and forth between this dreamland and this shock of realization i also just want to say we talked about this a bit last time but as far as jack goes this is a completely insane way to handle this right i think it is and i'm curious whether you think it is too for the record i don't actually think that it's a bad thing i think this is a really characterizing moment for jack and this kind of explosive action tends to set up a pattern at least i think that it does in some sense sometimes secret will move the camera down so that i can see spooky's beautiful face and every time i get distracted and it's wonderful He's so beautiful. 
He's such a destructive gentleman. I definitely don't think this was purposeful commentary on how hockey playing could in fact impact someone's thinking or personality, but I think that might be an interesting way to read this. The way that Jack, yes, as Ngozi says, he does things 110% or 0%, but there's also something about the way he attacks something, which I think you can think about in hockey terms. So to me, the thing that ends up being frustrating about this comic is that this pattern of Jack's behavior is never really investigated. It just ends up being this quirky charm. And I wish it were questioned a little bit more. What are the costs and benefits of having somebody who just impulsively acts on whatever their current drive is? Sometimes that's great. For example, you lose 100% of the shots you don't take. So you have to have some of that on the ice. And that's what makes somebody a great hockey player. And maybe sometimes it serves them in real life as well. But somebody who's constantly acting like this is bound to piss somebody off and sometimes be wrong and fuck up. And I think it would have been interesting for the comic to investigate the balance of pros and cons to living the way that Jack lives. And it just does not. It's just simply disinterested in doing that. I think it wouldn't even have to be this full in-depth exploration either. I think that there's really something to be said about telling a story through inference or through fragment. And I think Ngozi does that really well sometimes, even though not usually to resolution. Kent Parson and his history with Jack being an obvious example, that's all inference and it's so successful, at least for me as a reader. So it wouldn't even have had to been anything that intense. One scene Okay, maybe more than that. But at least one scene where someone reacts to Jack the wrong way. Even a scene where Holster, say, reacts to Jack in a way that's frustrated, not relegated to a Patreon comic, but actually within the comic itself, just so we can see that people have different reactions to him. I think that little fragment would have done so much, but instead it doesn't get explored and I just have fought with people on Tumblr about it. So cool. Listen, the point is it's nuts, right? Like this is crazy. Yeah, no, it is. It is crazy. It just is. Sorry. It seems to be a crazy that's working for Biddy and I guess it works out for them in the story in the long run, but running in, making out with somebody being like, I gotta go, and then leaving is pretty crazed. Why would he do this? The arbitrary logistics of the comic set aside, because again, Bob Zimmerman, Alicia Zimmerman, George, Jack, Biddy, none of them are real people. Any of these circumstances could have been shifted around in any way. And so the logistics we can get into, but are not actually unchangeable from an authorial perspective. So those logistics aside, why would Jack do this? Well, I think he has to because his mom and dad and boss, so the authority figures in his life, such as they are, are waiting for him. And he can't not be where he has to be when he's supposed to be there because he's a hockey player and he's trained to do what the people who are in charge of him say and not keep them waiting. Like hockey is about complying. You need to be punctual. You need to like be on the plane when the plane needs to go, be on the bus when the bus needs to leave, be at the rink when it's time for the skate. You need to be part of the program. 
And he can't not demonstrate to these authority figures in his life that he is complying with the program. So he allowed himself to run away for however long this series of kisses takes. But yeah, now he's got to go. They're texting him. They're telling him it's time to go. He's got to go. I also think it's weird how often this gets overlooked. He's closeted. And what he's doing is kissing another man if he doesn't show up and gives them reasons to start asking questions about where he's been and what he was doing there's no answer he can give them that's not incriminating either he says what he was doing or he says something that sounds suspicious oh i i just decided i really needed to go say goodbye to biddle again again or he lies and he can't really do any of those things. He can't just come out to them. He can't tell them something that's going to sound bizarre because he needs to seem like he's not. And he can't just lie to them because he can't efficiently live his life if he's constantly lying to everybody. He can't start off his NHL career with lies. So he basically needs to head off having to have one of these awkward conversations so that people don't know that this is what he's doing. And like, apparently, surprisingly, his parents already know and George doesn't actually care. And that's great. There's a big difference between abstractly being into men, theoretically, academically, would my parents and George be okay with the idea that I'm romantically into other guys? Is it complete? completely different thing then. Not only am I gay, but I've literally just graduated college and I'm already letting my attraction to other men keep me from being on time for lunch. If the question is, can a gay guy succeed in the NHL? Can an out gay man also be a hockey player? Then the idea that, oh, kissing a man is preventing him from being where he's supposed to be and doing what he's supposed to do is just not a good look because already then being into guys is keeping him from conforming with the expectations of hockey. Externally, if you want to convince all of these people that you're not the liability they all think you are, then you just need to show up on time for lunch. Yeah. Also, he has no impulse control. Oh yeah, he definitely doesn't have any impulse control. This is part of the pattern that I'm sure we'll talk more about because the comic sure doesn't. And like, I really mean that like he you know he, he has anxiety and so he's a drug addict <laughs> so like yeah he has no impulse control yeah exactly he can't do things until he can and then he must do them and uh, that's why i love my big boy but i also thought it was interesting that you pointed out the desire to avoid awkward conversations because i kind of think this is when we think about him doing this to biddy that's also part of it in part it's because he has to comply with you know the expectations set on him externally but i also wonder you know because we talked last time like why doesn't he talk to Biddy when school starts up again and he's 40 minutes away well doing it this way again I don't think this is like a calculated thing done on Jack's part I frankly don't think Jack is that good or able to calculate almost anything from what we see in canon anyway but I think that doing something shocking like this avoids immediate emotional consequences right he gets to like sort of blow in kiss Biddy 
and blow back out. And Biddy's left to deal with the emotional fallout of that. Obviously, Jack also has his own emotional fallout to deal with, but Jack is the one in control of the situation, so it's different. There's something happening here maybe where Jack is trying to avoid defining what precisely this kiss is. Jack seems incapable of defining himself almost in any way, except as a hockey player. As far as we can tell, he and Biddy never even have a conversation about what they are, what this interest is, what they expect from each other, what they want a relationship to look like. The next time we see them, it's an established relationship fic, like if we're talking about tropes, right? So leaving means that he doesn't have to answer any of those questions, doesn't have to speculate, doesn't have to hear what Biddy wants or thinks, other than the fact that Biddy allows him to kiss him. That's all that we know about what Biddy thinks about this. And it also means that Jack doesn't have to answer any questions about himself or his history or the specifics of what he's feeling. Instead, in his absence, Biddy can fill in the blank. Presumably they'll keep talking after this, but texting is not the same as sitting down and talking and being like, what is this? Now, that sounds boring for fiction. And I think there are good reasons you wouldn't want to write out that conversation necessarily. Although Check Please fandom is full of stories just like that. So maybe it could have been interesting to this fandom. But I think there's a control aspect to this, right? Where Jack is controlling the situation over Biddy, basically, and preventing Biddy from maybe, you know, having any of the clarification that you might expect he would want, which is kind of interesting when we consider that Jack then goes back out to be controlled by his boss and his very good parents who love him and would never do anything bad to their beloved boy, obviously. Ask me about the fanfic I'm writing. Anyway. Tomato, I'd love to hear about the fanfic you're writing. Spoilers, I'll put it after the credits. But yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, he's not somebody who seemingly really wants to have conversations about things. He could just call Biddy later. He doesn't have to kiss him in dramatic fashion. He could just be like, Biddle, listen, saying goodbye to you earlier today really got me thinking. And I have these feelings and I'd love to talk to you about them. But that's not his style. I think what's really interesting, I just put two and two together now when you said that, is that Biddy loves to talk. But Biddy also does not like to have conversations. I don't know that the comic wants you to think that about Biddy, but much of what we see Biddy doing is avoiding having honest conversations. So I don't know, there is something kind of interesting in their dynamic there. We are told repeatedly that Jack and Biddy communicate really well, but they do the vast majority of this communicating elsewhere. That goes back to the question of what's canon then. But for me, if we don't see it in paratexts, in the comic itself, or even described in words other than brief summary through the word of God, Ngozi being God in this case, I just don't know that I find it convincing as a piece of characterization. Even if Ngozi did not write it out in the comic, made tweets where Biddy reported some kind of communication between them that seemed good or whatever, although like what good communication is, is sometimes hard to define. But even that doesn't happen, right? So how am I supposed to believe they're so good at communicating if we never see evidence of it? Or so it feels like. I don't know. I mean, I think just a lot of these conversations are not exciting to put into a comic. Logistical conversations about what is your relationship and how is it defined are not usually quippy and exciting. It wouldn't make a fun comic. You could still have someone mention Biddy talking to somebody and saying, I'm so glad Jack and I figured out the thing that we were struggling with with this argument or whatever, right? You could throw it aside. I also think it would be an interesting writing challenge to try to make one of those conversations interesting 
interesting, but maybe Ngozi's not interested in that project and fair enough. But I don't know. It's It just doesn't feel like that statement has any continuity with even how the characters seem to approach their communication because mostly what we see is tension between them, which is solved eventually by coming out, which is not actually how tensions in a relationship work in my experience. But it really feels like Jack is just being kidnapped. Like it seems insane to me that he can't just text his parents, hey, I need another 30 minutes or can I meet you guys at the restaurant or whatever. If he had done that in the final panel, we wouldn't have gotten the ache, that perfect ache of the final panel. But there still would have been this implication that they were about to have this conversation. It still would have sort of faded to black on the uninteresting part. And then we would have seen that Jack isn't in fact being kidnapped. So what a win all around. It just feels that his life is very structured and very regimented. And like, of course it is because he is a hockey player and that's what their lives are like but you know it's just a little sad that this guy this is probably like the most triumphant day of his life up to this point in a lot of senses and he's only getting little scraps of moments where he can actually do what he wants to do and be with the people he wants to be with. He's on other people's time, other people's schedules. Other people are telling him where to be and where to go. And I don't think we're supposed to read it like that, but it's really hard for me not to. I do have a question. Jack is, in fact, as I mentioned before, not a real person who actually doesn't want to do anything. Well, does he want to do anything even within the comic? You know, what a great question. But he definitely doesn't want to do anything outside of the comic because he is not real. So why wouldn't Ngozi end year two this way with Jack rushing off and Biddy looking down at his phone? Narratively, what what does that do? One thing that's interesting is that this... I'll text you. And then he immediately texts Biddy. Creates a whole world of speculative possibilities. It creates a whole future of rich possibilities for what it is that he texted Biddy. But what's interesting is that what actually what happens next is boring. She included their series of text messages in the chirp book. And what they texted is not especially interesting, nor is it especially romantic or moving. You acted out with voices? No, because unfortunately, I feel like since this is in the chirp book, I don't want to share the text. If people want to buy the chirp book, it's in there. Basically, it's just this kind of boring rote back and forth conversation where Jack is like, I hope I didn't freak you out. And Biddy's like, no, it's okay. And then he's like, I didn't realize how much I was going to miss you, but I'm glad you reciprocated. And Biddy is just like, all right, that's kind of the gist of the conversation. And it's just not that interesting. It's very straightforward. I would say it's not interesting. And it's also not even sometimes the ways that Jack and Biddy aren't interesting kind of work their way around again to being interesting. But in this particular case, it is truly just if you've ever talked to anyone about nonviolent communication or therapy language, it's like that level of I'm being honest about my feelings with I statements. Talk to you later. I mean, it's it's really not interesting at all. If you could rewrite this one conversation, what would you have it say? Or would you leave it unsaid? Oh, I'd leave it unsaid. I think what's romantic and interesting about 
this particular I'll text you and then you don't know what Jack texted Biddy is that it leaves open the potential that he could have texted anything. And you can not only write your own little narrative into it, you can, you know, what is it that you want to project into what this text message might have said? If the text message doesn't exist and you don't know what it was, then it's only speculation, it's only futurity. So I think that it was just really silly to reveal anything. I highly doubt anything could have been satisfying five years after this I'll text you exchange originally happens because that's five years of every single reader filling in the blanks in their own minds. And so taking that away or putting something in nullifies that speculative process. So I wouldn't have ever revealed anything, but I feel like this is a moment of the comic linking into its own mythology too much. Yeah, I also always preferred it unanswered and I was really disappointed when this was written, but I kind of wonder whether this has to do with Ngozi's kind of changing relationship to fan involvement. As we saw throughout the comic, she became much more concerned about how people read the characters and how they talked about them, how they interpreted them how they reacted to the comic. I'm sure we'll get into it as we go forward. I think we've both written meta about it and that's fine, but but I wonder whether at a different earlier part of the comic, the speculation was less frustrating to her. Or maybe we've discussed parasocial relationships on this podcast before and the way people feel about Ngozi is often really complicated and some people are unkind to her and treat her inappropriately. Some people also seem to like really worship the ground she walks on. So I wonder if this is a little bit of offering this as a treat for people who really prioritize how she reads and writes these tidbits over what fans could imagine. Yeah, I'm sure that's part of it. It's also just like, oh, this myth of what it was that Jack texted Biddy. It's like, what do you think he texted him? First of all, Jack is not that interesting. I mean, he's interesting to me, but as a person, he's not lyrical. He's not creative. He's very plain spoken and straightforward. And what do you think he texted? He texted something like, hey, I'm into you, glad we kissed. Like, what do you think he texted? <laughs> the mythologized romance of Jack and Biddy becoming its own object for the people who ship them, including the creator, to overly emphasize and dwell on. You know, that's part of, oh, you know, I'm going to reveal what it was that Jack texted, this thing that people have been speculating on for this many years. What do you fucking think he texted? Biddy's been tweeting about what he's been texting Biddy for the past year of the comic, and it's nothing super interesting at best a little dorky he's not that interesting a man is the thing there are ways this text could have been interesting but that Ngozi while she really has her strengths as a writer and storyteller nuanced emotional dialogue does not tend to be that strength so this would not be the venue for what she's really really good at which tends to be group scenes and wacky hijinks and fun jokes and moments of intense emotion being reported later she tends to be really good at some of that stuff but the actual intense moment of emotion, not always great. And there's no visual attached to it. So her real strength is not attached to these texts, which is too bad. So in the blog post, there is this 
little teaser for what's coming next. And I think it'll be really interesting to sort of go through all of these points. So here's what's in this sort of teaser graph. And Gozi does this question and answer thing. And the question in this case is, so that's the end of the comic, right? Jack and Biddy are together. Dunzo? Hmm. Well, there are still some things. So here's the 19 things. Number one, what did Jack text Biddy? Uh, well, we just answered that, but it's interesting that this is a question because it never comes back in the text. It's not that significant. So, all right. It's not something that's addressed in the comic. Number two, and are Jack and Biddy really together? What's interesting about this question to me is that it's presupposing that that now they're together, having kissed one time and having had no conversation. I think that speaks to like, A, the romance tropes that I am constantly beating my chest about, so won't do here. I also think there's like a particular naivete, I guess, to the way that this comic addresses romance. And I think that this question really speaks to it. They kissed, of course they're going steady, you know? Jack gave Biddy his pin. Well then, uh, he gives him something and we'll find out maybe like seven strips from now. The next question then is, if not, how do they break up? So what's interesting to me is, wait a moment, they've just kissed and now maybe they're gonna break up. <laughs> I think these two questions probably should be collapsed into, are they going to get together now that they've admitted their feelings? But I think that that's a better question for thoughtful storytelling, not a better question for making fans froth at the mouth, which I think is a little bit the point of this series of questions, all inviting speculation of the kind that is, you know, really the bread and butter of fanfic, for lack of a better word. So I think it's in the interest of the fan base to word things as dramatically as possible. And given the fact that back in year two, sometimes feelings still got hurt in this comic. Dangling the carrot of are they together? If not, how do they break each other's hearts? Still had a certain amount of, you know, potentiality to it or a certain amount of like delicious possibility. Yeah, and I will make the point, not that I think this is specifically what Ngozi is responding to in this series of questions, that a lot of fanfic and a lot of fan speculation in the year or year and a half leading up to this moment at the end of year two was around the idea that Jack and Biddy knew they liked each other and either they were secretly dating in the comic and it just wasn't text yet, or that even though they knew they liked each other, they knew they couldn't be together because their relationship just wouldn't work because Jack is closeted, he plays in the NHL, and also he's fucked up. <laughs> that was kind of the fan line. And that's in fact what I think a lot of the most well-known Jack and Biddy fanfics up to this point are about. They're basically about like, yes, we know Jack and Biddy like each other and perhaps even Jack and Biddy know they like each other. But even if they like each other, is that enough? Is this in fact even a workable relationship? Right. So that's kind of the question. It's like they kissed, but just because they kiss, does that mean they can actually be boyfriends? There's two completely different things, you know? Apparently not. 
But yes, I know. The next question, if so, I guess talking about them getting together and or breaking up, how will they tell the boys? Boys Capital B. The answer is they, uh, they all go to brunch at a restaurant in town called Jerry's as we'll see at the end of first semester year three, and they say, we're dating. And then that's how they tell them. The follow-up question to how do they tell the boys is, will they even tell the boys? Yes, they will. Eventually. Eventually. What I will say is that the end of semester one, year three, has one of the best panels in all of Check, Please. And no matter what happened after that, no matter what happened before that, that panel remains forever. And uh, and I will say at least how will they tell the voice is answered by this amazing image, which can be used for so many things and that I think about constantly. So the question following that, will Jack keep this a secret from his NHL team? For a time. Yeah, it doesn't seem to matter. Who are the members of his NHL team? We meet some of them. None of them are important to the comic. Thinking about how Ngozi ships Jack and Biddy, you can see why the comic is populated by convenient background characters in the way that any fanfic takes characters who are important in the actual canon and then populates them in the background, except that they don't have any other canon, so they're just sort of like floating uselessly back there. I guess we're supposed to understand about those people that they love Jack. But anyway, we'll, we'll get into it. Snowy, I don't know who else. What does this mean for Jack's career? He's only a rookie. Interesting fact, nothing. Right. The fact that she asked this question, perhaps you would think it would have some impact on his future. But nope. What will happen when the Falconers play the Aces? Well, the Aces win. But more importantly, seemingly... So building out the case that like maybe this Aces thing was going to be more important, it is in parentheses, which makes it an aside, but it also kind of like singles it out as important because it's separated out from the text. And it's interesting, isn't it? Because it's just this weird blip. The two strip arc about this particular one hockey game are probably the most riveting strips in the comic. At the same time, they play the aces, they lose. And then at the end, Biddy has a voiceover that's like, well, sometimes you lose a hockey game. Oh, well. And that's it. It doesn't really come back as meaningful in any way. Nothing happens when the Falconers play the aces either, as nothing happens as a result of almost any of these questions. But what I will say that's interesting about the fact that this is an aside is that it is an aside right after the question about Jack's career, which to me suggests not only is important, but the suggestion that the Aces and the Falconers, you know, game or rivalry would have some extra meaning for Jack's career, which to me hints at this suggestion that perhaps we were going to get more of Ken Parson and more of his relationship to Jack in the NHL. Just the placement of this aside, I think is important in that case. It's another reminder that this is lurking in the background. There's no need to mention the Aces here. You could just ask what will happen when the Falconers lose, if they ever do. And you could get the same impact in terms of the possibility for Jack's career being a rookie, new face of the team, blah, blah, blah. But the ace is being brought up is, is a hint of what will never be. So how does Biddy deal with the pressure of dating an NHL player? 
or the sadness of sacrificing a relationship for Jack's NHL career. Well, he doesn't sacrifice a relationship for Jack's NHL career, so they get really stressed out. Then they come out and have no problems. It's fine. That's how he deals with it. All right, well, how does Biddy deal with relationships at all? By becoming his mother. Well, what's interesting is that's a good question, isn't it? But what the comic basically is just like, well, he's in love with Jack, is the answer to how he deals with relationships. I am frustrated by a lot of the second half of the comic, but I'm also deeply in love with it and how fucking wild it is. This is not what the comic wants me to understand, but it is the way that I negotiated my relationship to the comic. And there are not that many people in fandom who have this relationship with the second half of the comic. Either they're really into it for like the good reasons you're supposed to be into it, or they're not into it and they're doing something else. I'm really into it, but not for good reasons. The question, how does Biddy deal with relationships is answered in a pretty fascinating way. The answer is being passive aggressive, feeling weird jealousy at times. I wasn't not joking when I said he becomes his mother like he starts acting motherly towards Jack at particular times things that I would classify as motherly are they things my mother did no but I think they are things that mothers sometimes do that other members of families often don't I think that's super interesting the comic doesn't want to engage with that at all but the comic portrays it and so I think that is actually like a really interesting answer to this question but I don't think I'm supposed to see it that way when will mama biddle and coach find out will they ever even find out well they find out at the end of year three when biddy and jack kiss on national television that's how that happens how are ransom and holster going to be as captains great question which the comic answered it how will shitty handle harvard law another great question no answer yeah same interesting you could have written a comic about that i guess It's It's Lardo's last year as manager. How can anyone replace her while they solicit advertisements for a new manager and they interview one and they hire her? Her name's Ford. She seems cool. We don't know very much about her and never learn. So that's that. Are Ransom, Holster, and Lardo going to get jobs, go to grad school? Well, Ransom and Holster get jobs. Lardo seemingly is a freelance artist. Who gets their dibs? Oh, God. Um, Ollie and Wiki get the attic, and then Dex and Nursey get Lardo's room. What about the new frogs, the tadpoles? Well, they certainly, they certainly exist. Who are the new frogs now? Is it Tango and Whiskey? Yeah, it's Tango and Whiskey. There's a third one, isn't there? Not in that year. Oh, because Ford is the new one. Okay. Who will be captain? Biddy will be captain. Exciting. Ugh. Who could have predicted that one? Well, what's so interesting is that a lot of people predicted that one, even though there was no basis for it. People just somehow knew he would be. The thing that I think is interesting I was going back through my own OMGCP tag, which because I'm a bad archivist, like has changed over the years. It used to be like one thing and then I turned it into another thing. And then anyway, doesn't matter. And I found this pattern that I had forgotten about this time when people were really gunning for Biddy to join the NHL because he'd been a captain of an NCAA team. And why did I bring that up? I don't know. But a lot of people saw that as a trajectory for Biddy. And you know what? I think that's nuts. There's no way. It's a fun fix scenario. I don't think that being the captain of an NCAA team is the same as being in the NHL. But okay, here's what I want to say. I think years three and four would have been more successful if she hadn't outlined all of this. 
I think you're right, except I actually think the comic doesn't even answer all these questions with bad answers. It's that the pacing in, in the second two years is a mess and never recaptures the pacing of the first two years. So I think if she had managed to pace it correctly, asking these questions would have been really good fodder for the audience. But because the pacing is crazy and because the answers end up not being satisfactory that's the problem if the answers had been satisfactory the fulfillment of these questions would have been like so delicious i guess you could argue that by suggesting jack and biddy could break up she introduces a tension that she then spends two years relieving which is bad storytelling but one could argue that i also think it's crazy that he's presupposing that people will think the comics over <sighs> yeah i don't know yeah, it's just, it's, it's, it's weird. It's just, honestly, it's like, what did he think? Like people aren't going to come back for the next year of the comic or that people, it's like, he has a real problem with not being able to just not say what's going to happen in her comic. This is a very stupid suggestion, but what if Ngozi read a little bit of reading theory and just calmed down for a hot second? I think that would be great. I'm sure she's read some reading theory. She's been to school, but I think that if people didn't have expectations for the comic, it would be so much easy to tolerate what ends up being in the comic. Anything that happens then is just like, okay, fine. But if what you say is you're telling a certain kind of story and that you're going to address all of these things, then I'm going to presume that at least, you know, if he's one sixth of the main characters, a sixth of the rest of the comic is going to be about should he being in law school? If you ask this question about how he does in law school. And so the fact that he just gets lost as a character after this point wouldn't annoy me if you hadn't set up the expectation that you were going to find out more about him in law school. And like, there is one strip where he recounts like a day in the life at law school, but it's basically within four comics of the one that we're reading right now. And it doesn't come back again. So I want to push on that slightly, not because I disagree. Like, I think especially when we think about the importance of the blog posts and paratextual kind of stuff in general, I think that's probably true. But I don't think it's only the blog post, right? I think actually a lot of these questions are raised within the text of the comic, even if not explicitly. And shitty getting into law school didn't have to be the climax of the Lardo's art gallery strip, right? It could have just been thrown in somewhere. So I think like that sort of question is actually asked in the strip, but because he's a main character, because we see that as an important moment, this definitely pushes it and makes it harder. But I think part of the problem is also a lot of these questions seem to be legitimately raised to some extent within the comic. The answers are not always in good faith or something. That's maybe, I can't quite articulate what I'm trying to get at. I just don't think it's only the blog post. I think it's that the comic shifted gears. I don't actually want to talk about this. Do you want to tell people to go read your meta post about it? So maybe about a year ago, I, well, around the time the comic was ending and Jack and Biddy had their proposal at the end of year for retroactive spoilers, everybody. I wrote a little blog post where I compared what didn't work about that moment to what did work about this moment at the end of year two. And what I basically said is that Biddy falling back into the chair in shock and then getting that text message from Jack 
at the end of the strip, at the last moment in year two, is effectively an undercutting of the tension at the ends of this very emotionally riveting two comic arc. It's like you, along with Biddy, are in this haze where you're invested in the moment. And then all of a sudden it's like, he like gets a text. And it's like his attention snaps from staring straight ahead to like looking at his phone. And it's this thing that changes the rhythm of the comic in such a way that it cuts the emotions you're feeling and redirects your attention to what's actually happening. And I think that's what makes that strip so successful. If it ended on that final panel of Biddy just in the chair gazing straight ahead, it wouldn't be as successful. When we get to the Jack and Biddy's proposal, you know, I'm sure I'll want to revisit this from the other half of that. But when I talk about like the quality of Sheck Please degrading or what made Sheck Please good and redeeming, even though it's a romance comic that isn't the genre I usually go for. What made it successful was that she was self-aware enough to know that you need something to cut your attention away from what's happening and refocus it somehow. It needs a beat. And she usually understands that. And I think this particular comic is a really successful iteration of her understanding that. Because all of a sudden, your attention is snapped away from this foggy headspace of a daze. And back to the actual moment at hand, this bare dorm room with crooked shades and no lampshade on the floor lamp and... You're in this wobbly dorm chair and the lighting quality is hazy and it's not in fact super romantic. You're in a frat house and coming back to that reality is an important part of the moment. I just want to briefly talk about why it's effective by introducing something that cuts the tension. It allows the reader to process that tension. It also makes the tension feel more, almost like more poignant by being removed from it. But in terms of genre, the kind of genre that doesn't cut tension tends to be melodrama. And for good or for ill, we as a society, when we think about romances and domestic stories, which Checkpoint ultimately is, despite the hockey, despite the coming out story, Checkpoint is basically a domestic story. It's about the home and relationships. Domestic stories that do not undercut their tension some way successfully kind of become melodramatic. And we tend to view those stories as schlocky. They're not as sophisticated. They're just not as sophisticated. I mean, that's true because their feelings tend to be more one note and more overwhelming, but without the complexity of real emotion. And that's one of the problems I think later on in the comic is that those that lack of tension makes everything less sophisticated and complex. Does that make sense? Or that, that lack of undercutting of the tension makes the tension less complex. You are muted. Well, all I want to say is if you're still undecided about whether or not to follow Ngozi's Patreon and support her at a level that enables you to go to the Discord, while we were recording, she wrote a little script of Biddy saying, well, you know, you're going through such a tough time with this pandemic, but just so you know, you still haven't drawn my wedding. I'm not mad about it, but little reminders help. 
I find it very charming. Very good. Very good. I find it very charming too. And then she follows up to say, God, he'd be so passive aggressive to me personally. I really need to figure out my Patreon problem so that I could get into this discord. Well, that's year two. That's year two of the comic. Tomato, we read half of the comic. Great. Yeah. Insert a goal horn or something. Cool, cool. I thought we were going to do like a special episode called something like the problem with Zimbits or like what's wrong with Zimbits or something. But I think maybe we'll have to hold that for now because I believe our next episode is going to be a special episode called is this podcast mean? (laughs) So I guess we're going to do what's wrong with this podcast and I'm looking forward to it and I think you should too. And guys, if you have followed us up to this point, thank you. And as a reward, hopefully we'll have a uh, website with transcripts on it for you. Um, sometime before we uh, get the third year of the podcast happening. So tune back in. Is this podcast mean? Join us when we answer the question with more questions. And I've been Secret and you can follow me at Camillier, C-A-M-I-L-L-I-A-R or S-K-R-T-O-M-G on Tumblr or my AO3 is familiar and i'm tomato i love to answer questions about myself like am i personally mean i think i have the best answers to that question you can find me on ao3 at tomato underscore greens where i write very horrible fanfic you can also find me on tumblr at tomatorights.tumblr.com and you can find our podcast on spotify podbean i said that out of its usual order so it confused me and check displeased.tumblr.com anything else I guess that's it. Displeased is written, recorded, and produced by Secret and Tomato. Our theme music is by Tomato, and our art is by Nahangan. That was very legit. All right, everybody, here's the secret after credits admission bad bob jack some things you don't talk about all right (laughs) i'm so excited and again it it bears repeating thank you for following our 100 free podcast that is completely a labor of love yeah we really appreciate it it's a great joy to make and it's a great joy to get to talk to some of you and i can't believe anyone listens to us i think that's insane but i'm very excited that apparently someone cares about our opinions who aren't just us yeah we regularly get something like 33 listeners so that's amazing (laughs) i think that's wild listen are there bigger podcasts out there sure are there better podcasts out there undoubtedly is there any other check please podcast out there no and that's why we're successful (laughs) well i do have to say of all the check please fanfics wait gotta end gotta be done (laughs) tomato i'm i'm signing off i'm logging off Yeah. Okay. Goodbye, everybody. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Bye. Bye. We did it. We did year two. I have to stop recording.